Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Three, two, one. But I'm working out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we go. Welcome in, everybody. Episode 276 of the podcast that is sweeping America. The Aratora Sports Podcast. It is Monday, August 3rd, 2020. Unbelievable. We're in August, people. I cannot believe it. And all I got to say about today's show is, people, find you a man who can do both. And what do I mean by that? I mean, we are bouncing back and forth between football and basketball. It is kind of that time on the calendar anyway. And so I think it's a perfect time to talk both. We are actually going to lead with football because two things have happened since I last recorded this podcast. The SEC has finally announced what their plans are for the 2020 college football season. I actually like the idea of going to league-only games. Season will start September 26th. I tell you why that's important, why that's potentially a good thing, and why it really does help put us in a position where we potentially get uh, some sort of normal conclusion to the end of the season. Big fan of what the SEC did. We will also talk about this nonsense that came out of the Pac-12 this weekend. Uh, uh, Players are protesting. I get it. Whatever. We will get into uh, some of it in terms of why, while it is admirable that they are trying to use their platform and their voice, uh, and I think some changes are coming, some changes are on the way, realistically, a lot of the stuff that they are asking for is just not going to happen. In some cases, literally can't happen. And so I kind of went off on Saturday when this report first came out. We got some details Sunday, and I want to talk about it. But then, after I get all mad over the Pac-12 stuff, I do want to have some fun. Because it was an incredible weekend for college basketball, and we will transition to college basketball. For people who do not know, the NBA draft deadline, the deadline for players to withdraw from the NBA draft was on, will be on, excuse me, Monday afternoon. Monday, 5 p.m. Eastern is the last time that if a player wants to be eligible to play college basketball, they can withdraw from the NBA draft. Obviously, under normal circumstances, that deadline is usually around Memorial Day. This year, it is extended because of all the situation with COVID. So we are finally getting some closure. And over the weekend, some major decisions were made. Luca Garza, first-team All-American at Iowa, coming back. Michigan State lost a guy and added a guy. Gonzaga uh, has had, had some good news this weekend. Arkansas. 
Arkansas had some good news this weekend. So what I will do is I will break down the decisions that were made, what they mean for college basketball, and then those final few decisions that are coming up on Monday that could swing the college basketball season one way or the other in 2020. So as I said, find you a man who can do both because AT is going from football to basketball like it's nothing today. Did AT do it again? Or did AT do it again? All right, before we get started on what I think will be a very entertaining show, I do want to remind you, please make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes. You can do it on the Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, Podcast Addict is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars if you want to leave a nice note about how much you enjoy it, what you enjoy about the show. Is it the guests? Is it AT? Is it the basketball stuff? Is it the college football stuff? What is it? Make sure to leave a rating and review. Also, a couple other scheduling notes in a minute, but first, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram. Uh, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. If you have any questions, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. And as I just referenced, a couple scheduling notes before we get for, uh, uh, going moving forward. The first is, and I know I've said this a few times, but as, as you guys get back to a sense of normalcy here, it's the end of the summer. A lot of you guys took a lot of time off around that July 4th holiday. If you did miss any episodes throughout the spring, throughout the summer, uh, go back and listen because I think it was a lot of great content. I think I did a a lot of really fun stuff, especially early in the pandemic when everybody was stuck at home. Um, I got 40 minutes with Rick Barnes. I got 35 minutes with Patrick Patterson, who's now playing in that NBA bubble. I got uh, you know time with Obi Toppin, the National Player of the Year, Emmanuel Quickly, SEC Player of the Year, Dan Issel, Basketball Hall of Famer. A lot of really fun interviews from early on in this quarantine. If you missed any of them, Go back and listen. I know I've been saying that. And then the final thing is this, is that um, some of you have asked me if I would ever consider doing more shows, doing more than just the Monday-Thursday routine. And I think once college football starts, I'm seriously considering doing that. Uh, The bottom line is I just feel like last year when college football came about, it felt like uh, the show got a little too formulaic during the season in the sense that uh, uh, you know, Monday we would just recap the games, Thursday we would uh, preview the following weekend's games, and there were a lot of things that happened during the week that I felt like got glossed over. And I think as we move into the fall, maybe we don't start right after Labor Day like I traditionally would, but I think as we get college football back, and oh by the way, college basketball is going to ramp up maybe the same time that college football is because there's going to be less of a of, of a gap in terms of having all of September for football. Now all of a sudden football is not going to be there. I think we're going to have a lot of sports. I think we're going to have a lot of stories. I think when games start to get played, it'll be interesting. And I'm thinking about adding a third episode. And I, a third episode a week, I think I would go to a Monday, Wednesday, Thursday format. Uh, so new episodes Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, basically an additional episode Uh, to kind of get you guys ready. And and the third one might be a little bit shorter. Maybe it's an opportunity to have more Nick Coffee. Maybe it's an opportunity to bring on uh, guests that I normally wouldn't have, maybe outside of sports. I don't know, but I just want to know from you guys. You listen to a lot of podcasts. You listen to a lot of radio. Maybe
maybe you have less time than normal because of this situation with COVID. Maybe you're not going back to the office. Maybe you don't have a commute to work. So just shoot me a note, Aaron Torres, podcast questions at gmail.com. Shoot me a, a note on Instagram, Twitter, whatever. Do you want more AT? Do you not want more AT? Because if you guys want more of this show, I'm happy to deliver it. It's just a matter of if it's something that you guys want. So let me know. And then as I said, make sure to go back and listen to old episodes. All right. Now, enough nonsense. I'm already going long, and we got a big show today, so let's get into it, people. There is no more time to waste, and I do want to start with really what was the biggest story since we last spoke on this show, and that was the decision of the SEC to go to a 10-game league-only schedule. Um, And obviously, when I last recorded it, it was Wednesday night. The ACC had gone to a 10 plus one schedule, 10 conference games plus one non-conference game. And I was saying even at that time that I do believe that the, the SEC is on the brink of making an announcement. It comes 24 hours later. And the SEC is, as I said, going to 10 league-only games. Now, before we get into it, what I will say, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. This isn't necessarily a, a, a newsy topic. You've heard a lot of different people weigh in on this. But let me just give you my quick thoughts because I actually think it's a really, really, really good thing. Uh, but some quick thoughts on the SEC going to 10 league-only games. And where I would start is very simply this, is that when the announcement came down, I think like a lot of these announcements, I was really bummed. I've talked about it many times. When the Big Ten went to league-only games all the way back in early to mid-July, I was bummed out. When the Pac-12 went to conference-only games a day later, I was bummed out. When the Ivy League canceled fall sports, I was bummed out. But the SEC was no exception in that sense. However, like all of those other situations, specifically the Big Ten and the Pac-12, I actually like when I had time to kind of sit back, peel back the layers and think about it, I was actually not only okay with what the SEC did, but I actually really liked it. And let me explain why. So first of all, just the basics. I think you all know, but if you don't, the SEC Conference of Champions, I guess that's technically the Pac-12 according to Bill Walton, but uh, the, 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 the football monolith in, in college football is going to 10 league-only games. We're going to lose all out of conference games. And the big news is that the season doesn't start until September 26th. The season will also be pushed back two weeks to end on December 19th. So the SEC championship game, which was scheduled for December 5th, now is going to pop on December 19th. And again, when it first happened, I said, oh my God, we have to wait until the end of September to get SEC football? Oh no, no, AT can't do it. I can't make it. I, I, Labor Day is, you know, Labor Day, I shut it down, social life is over, and I move 100% into college football, then into college basketball mode, and I just say, look, you need me on the weekends, AT is busy. I cannot be accounted for on any Saturday, uh, and frankly, any Sunday too. And when I heard September 26th, a little part of my soul died. But when I thought about it, and when I thought about why the SEC made this decision, I actually like it, it actually makes sense, and it comes back down to the very simple thing that I have said from the beginning of this situation. And that is, I believe the SEC made this decision. I don't think I'm the first person to say this. Others have said it. But uh, the SEC made this decision because of one simple thing, and it's something I've talked about all along. The SEC has no idea what is going to happen when students come back to these campuses and college football players are interacting with other students, specifically females, specifically social settings, but also in classes, also in 
the dorms, also in places like that. And so to kind of look at it from the bigger picture, what I would say is this. I think if you've been listening to this podcast, you would say that for the most part, I've probably been one of the more optimistic guys when it comes to all of this stuff with college football. Now, I'm reporting in real time. I also kind of think that I'm not really optimistic as much as I am telling you both sides. I talked about the media bias on the last show, the fact that some of the media I don't believe is sharing the full picture with you guys, but instead just a negative portion for whatever reason. And I don't know why that reason is. I don't know if it's to drive clicks. I don't know if it's because they're personally genuinely scared. But I don't believe the media has shared the full perspective with you. I think I've been more optimistic, but what I really think is I don't really believe I've been optimistic as much as I've just presented both sides of the argument. But with all of that said, even though I have been more optimistic, the one thing that I have always said from the beginning is very simply this. We do not know what is going to happen when college students return to college campuses and how it is going to affect these college football programs. And as I've said all along, I think for the most part, the testing is working. The bubble-type environment that these kids have been training in has been working. I've, I've given you the numbers. Kentucky, zero positive tests out of 100-plus. Notre Dame, another 103 tests done last week, zero positives. Boston College had a ton of zero positives over the weekend. On and on and on and on and on. But the one thing that no one can account for is what is going to happen when students come back to campus. And so I bring all that back to talk about the SEC's decision and specifically the decision to go to uh, a conference-only schedule starting on September 26th. And I do think this is smart for one very simple reason. I think it's really smart because I think that the SEC, what they're doing is they're saying, look, do we wish we could start... August 29th for week zero, September 5th for week one. Yes, but the best thing that we can do for our football teams and the best thing that we can do to get a full schedule in with as many games as possible is to start the season late and see what happens when college kids come back to campus. Because we know that whether the players are safe, whether the players are accountable, even if they stay away from parties, they are still going to be in classes with other kids. They're still going to be in dorms with other kids. And as much as we want to catch this stuff, it's going to be absolutely impossible. And then if you extrapolate it out to the idea that some kids at some places are not going to be responsible the way that we saw with the Miami Marlins, the way that we've seen with some of these college campuses and college football programs, I think everybody kind of understands that positive tests are going to happen, right? Like the big Washington Post story came out on Saturday where uh, college football players were raising concerns and people got mad because the SEC kind of said, look, we're going to have some positive tests here. And so I think the SEC understands there's going to be positive tests. I think they understand there's probably going to be an uptick in positive tests when kids return to campus. And I think they understand optically it probably did not make sense to start the season right around September 1st. And the reason optically it didn't make sense is very simply this. It's really two reasons. One, because you're probably going to have, because one, you're going to have the uptick. Two, you're probably going to have positive tests within that football program. And it's very likely that if you start a week or two after kids come back to campus, you're going to have to postpone games right off the bat. And there is nothing worse, I think, optically from the perspective of people looking in than having to cancel games right away. Like imagine if they went league only and they had Alabama, Florida week one or Alabama, Georgia week one. 
and it was all the hype for the next three weeks, next month, September 1st, Ala September 5th, Alabama, Georgia. And then they had to cancel. Then that becomes the number one talking point in sports going forward of, oh my God, even Nick Saban can't control us. We have to shut down the whole season. And I do think optically, the, the, the presidents and the ADs and even the coaches, I think, understand that if we have to start canceling games, then the media, then the public sentiment will be that we shouldn't be playing games at all. I look at how the, the situation in baseball is being covered right now. Every single time we have a positive test, people, oh, we got to cancel things. We got to stop it. The Miami Marlins situation, the St. Louis Cardinals situation. We can't, uh, we, we had three games postponed last night in baseball. We can't play anymore. Really? We, we, three games postponed. If you actually do the math, if you actually do the reading, the Miami Marlins are a different deal because their guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. They went out to bars in Atlanta. But you look at the St. Louis Cardinals, St. Louis Cardinals had like five positive tests, including coaches, and everybody is asymptomatic. And we want to shut down Major League Baseball over a bunch of asymptomatic cases. Now, maybe you guys feel that way, but I think realistically, most of the world understands that you have to move on in that situation if you're Major League Baseball. And I think what college football hopes to avoid is the similar optic look of having to cancel games, especially early in the season, and having it feel like the protocols are not working. I've been very adamant and I've been very direct in that commentary on this show, is that the protocols are for the most part working and that we can't freak out every time that there's a positive test or two or even 10. That is part of the deal. That is part of this situation. As I've said all along, the safest place that kids can actually be is on a college campus and we cannot forget that. So I think the SEC made the right decision because I think most of these schools over the next two, two and a half, three weeks are going to start welcoming students back to campus. And while I give the schools a bunch of credit, because I think they're doing everything that they can to protect not only football players, but also the, the students in general, we also, we know there's going to be positive tests. And so I think what, what, what the SEC decided to do was say, hey, let's see if these first two weeks, first three weeks, if there is an uptick, if we can get this under control, and if we can figure out and adjust our protocols as need be. So I give the SEC so much credit for that because I think it's a very smart move and I think they will be able to proceed forward with less positive tests and less canceled or postponed games if they wait as long as they are, which is until the end of September. Again, week one of SEC football is not until September 26th and I think that's a very smart move, again, to see what happens when students return to campus, to give it a two, three, four five-week wiggle room where you can now adjust your protocols, figure out a way to um, you know, minimize positive tests as college football players begin to interact with other students on campus. The second thing, which I think is really important, I think has been kind of underreported in all this, is that the SEC actually moved back the conference championship game until December 19th. Original date was September 5th, or excuse me, December 5th. SEC championship game moves back two weeks. That is really big, and I will tell you why, and it goes back again to something that I've been saying on this show from the beginning. You guys have asked me, people have asked me, well, what's the difference between college football and college basketball? And if college football can't go off, does that mean we're not getting college basketball? Well, I do think we're getting college basketball. Uh, it was interesting, Luca Garza, who I'm going to talk about in a minute, he decided to stay at Iowa on Sunday and his head coach, Fran McCaffrey, said, we're getting an NCAA tournament. So most people in college basketball believe we're going to get some semblance of a season. But the thing that I've said about college basketball, and I promise I'll bring it all back to college football in a minute, is that 
with college basketball, there is a pseudo bubble that will be created on these college campuses. I've said it all along. I just said it a minute ago. Most of these campuses are opening early this year. They're opening August 10th, August 17th, that time frame, a week from, to, for a week from today, frankly, a week, two weeks from today. But they're bringing students back earlier and getting them out earlier so that when Thanksgiving hits, the first semester is done and they're basically off campus from Thanksgiving, the week before Thanksgiving, through like the middle to the end of January. And so for college basketball, that is a nice like two, two and a half month window where you're going to essentially have a bubble on campus. It's going to allow you to play a lot of games in a controlled environment when your athletes are not getting in contact with a lot of other students. So what does that have to do with college football? Well, if you look at the calendar now, we don't start until September 26th. Basically, the calendar is basically October, early November, and then we got the back half of November, and we got the first three weeks of December to get things right. And so what I thought the SEC did, which again was very underrated, is December 5th they will play conference games, and then December 12th is a potential open date, which will allow you, if you have to postpone a game in September, in October, in early November, you'll be able to play that game and you'll do it in an environment where your kids are basically on campus by themselves. And so I think that's a really good thing. The bubble in football obviously wouldn't extend as far as the bubble in basketball, but you're still talking two, three, four weeks there where essentially if your football players are on campus, they're really not coming into contact with very many people. And so I do think that's important. I do think that's good for college football. And I do think that's big in terms of actually finishing the season with a flourish. Again, for the millionth time, we do not know what, happen when, what, what will happen when students come back to campus. We do not know what's going to happen when players block and tackle. But if we can work through those issues, if we can keep our players healthy, what it also means is that by the time late October, early November, mid-November hit, we'll be in a situation where we can finish with players having minimal interaction with people, and then ideally, you can get them to that conference championship game, we can crown a conference champion, and we can figure out the playoff deal. All right, so that's the good news with the SEC's decision. Now, I will say, I will readily admit that there is some bad news that comes with this, and I don't want to gloss it over, and I don't want to be Tony Robbins and Mr. Only Optimistic and not present the full picture to you. So let's talk about a few negatives with the SEC stuff, then we'll get to the Pac-12 stuff, because Oh my God, am I fired up about the Pac-12 stuff. But SEC, bad news. Good news, we're probably going to nip it in the bud early. We'll figure out what's going on. We'll get testing protocols adjusted. We'll be good to go September 26th. Season extends later. Chance to bubble on campus. Those are the good things. What are the bad things? In terms of bad things, um, I do think there are a few. The first one is obvious, right? Is that, um, you know, out-of-conference games are gone. And so those rivalry games are no longer available. So if you're a, a Kentucky fan, you don't get to play Louisville. If you're a South Carolina fan, you don't get to play Clemson, which might be a good thing if you're a South Carolina fan. Uh, Florida, Florida State, Georgia, Georgia Tech. But then we also lose some really good out-of-conference games as well. I wrote this uh, the other day, but you can make the argument that LSU-Texas, if you remember that game week two in Austin, that was like the best college football game of all of last year. And we were supposed to get the return date in Baton Rouge this year, and it's not going to happen. So it's a bummer that that game's canceled. It's a bummer that Tennessee was supposed to travel to Oklahoma in week two, and that game isn't going to happen. It's a bummer that Georgia was supposed to play a good Virginia team 
early in the season that Auburn is going to be playing an improving North Carolina team and that those games are canceled. That's one. The other one is that for some SEC teams, this is not ideal. Uh, we have a lot of Arkansas fans that listen to this show. You know I love you guys. But my buddy John Neighbors, radio host in Arkansas, put out one of the funniest tweets I've seen in a long time where he basically said, oh, my God, are we about to go 0-10 this year? Is there, are, we, are we screwed? Are we going 0-10? And, and I think Vandy fans feel the same way. Uh, I think South Carolina fans are probably looking at a 2-8, and 3-7 type year. I think Missouri fans are going to struggle. Uh, Ole Miss maybe a little bit with Lane Kiffin. I mean, on the flip side, you do get more SEC games, which is awesome. We're obviously going to get Alabama-Georgia already, and now there's talk about a potential Alabama-Florida game. But that is one of the disappointing things about this whole deal is that there will be no out-of-conference games. And then in conference, some teams I think will benefit and some teams like the Vandys and like the Arkansas are at a real, real disadvantage. Uh, the other big thing, and then we'll get to the Pac-12, I promise, that I do think is a little bit of a bummer. I do expect more guys to opt out and not play college football this year. And I think I've been pretty vocal about this, and I've been pretty adamant about this. And if you guys listen to every single episode, you know I've talked about this a lot. But I do think that, that for most guys, they do need college football. But I do think there's that select few, dozen, two dozen, three dozen guys maybe, that really don't need college football. They're in pretty good position. Now, they could, get, they could improve their stock. Somebody could jump them or leap them if they don't play. But I don't think it's like, you know, the like like their world will come crashing down if they don't play college football. And I talked about it a little bit on the last show with the kid Caleb Farley from Virginia Tech, who is a projected first round pick who elected to to not play college football this year. Like I said, I don't blame him. Um, you know, his his mother tragically died of cancer. He doesn't want to get anybody else sick in his family, and so he's deciding to sit out. But I said on the last episode, I said I really don't think this is going to become a trend as long as we get a season kind of on a normal schedule. Well, now that we push back four weeks, I do think that some of those better players in those SEC programs might just say, you know what, screw it, I'm out. And the, the reason why I think is very simply this, is that if you remember, if you remember back to like the middle of May, I was doing victory laps on this show because the SEC announced, or the NCAA announced, that on June 1st, athletes could return to campus. And on June 8th, it was SEC teams mostly all brought their players back to campus for workouts. And so you think about the fact that kids have been on campus since July, June 8th, not July, June 8th, working out. So we're talking about almost two full months now working out. They just started practice, and now you're pushing back their season another three weeks? I think it's going to be really hard to keep those elite players focused, especially because there's no promise on the back end that it's going to work out, right? Like if you push back the season and you can say with 100% certainty, we're getting in all 10 games, don't even sweat it. If you play at Bama, you're going to get Georgia, you're going to get LSU, you're going to get Auburn, you're going to get all those national TV games. I think a lot of kids would take that. But I also think now that we really are pushing back three weeks and we don't know, we still aren't positive, I do think there are going to be some kids that skip out. And I think there's every kid's got to make his own decision. And I think there's going to be reasons for kids to stay. I think there's a lot of kids that, um, one, like I said, need to improve their draft stock. I think there's going to be plenty of kids that are just like, you know what, I'm basically done with my degree. I might as well just finish up my degree and get out of here in December. Um, and I think there's other kids that are just going to want to play, that are like, dude, I, I'm a football player. This is what I do. What the heck am I going to do training by myself? You know, there's only so much lifting and running that you can do. 
But I also think there's going to be other players who just say, you know what? I just can't do this, man. I'm I'm not going to sit around another three weeks. I'm not going to I'm not going to wait and hope that we get this season off without a hitch, without any certainty that we actually will. So I think that is something to monitor. I think that's something to follow. I don't have a percentage. I don't have numbers. And I do think, in terms of the SEC, it could hurt maybe the conferences that are scheduled to start earlier, the ACC. The Big Ten, as of right now, we're talking whatever, September 5th, September 12th, whatever. Maybe those schools now have the opportunity to to allow their players to stay because the season starts earlier. But I do think, I'll tell you, if I was a Kirby Smart this morning, if I was an Ed Orgeron this morning, if I was a Nick Saban this morning, I would be worried about agents getting in my players' ears, getting in their parents' ears and saying, dude, you don't need to be at Alabama stressed out getting involved with other, you know, with other kids, kids are coming back to campus. You could get, just, just come with me. I'll pay for your housing. I'll pay for your workouts and we'll get ready for next draft. I don't know how many it will be, but the longer we push back this season, the more realistic I think that it is that that ultimately. All right. So let's get into the other kind of big topic of the week. Not, not kind of, it was the big topic, uh, specifically in college football. Uh, and it pertains to the PAC 12. And for people who didn't see it, let me kind of give you a little rundown, explain what's going on. Um, and then explain why, I, I mean, I just, I, I, I got a lot to say. Let me just put it to you this way. And very simply, what you need to know is basically this, is that first of all, uh, Pac-12 may have heard of them, college football, USC, Oregon, fight on victory, all that stuff, right? Uh, Pac-12 football players, a group of them at schools across the conference have basically banded together and kind of given an ultimatum to the conference itself. Essentially, they have certain demands that they want. They have certain demands that they are expecting before they take the field again to represent their university. Um, and we'll get into the demands in a second, but essentially it's very simply this, is they want to be protected. They want to feel safe. They want economic uh, advantages to what is going on in the conference, and they put together this list of demands. This report starts circulating, I guess it was Saturday afternoon into Saturday evening. The list of demands comes out on Sunday morning, and we have ourselves a little showdown at the OK Corral between players and administrators and the powers that be in the Pac-12. And let me just say this. Uh, first of all, I think it's very admirable. I, I, I'm not against protesting. I'm not against standing up for what you believe is right. I'm not against trying to better things for yourself or for others involved. Uh, but what I will also say, and I said this on Twitter, is a lot of these demands are the equivalent of me walking into a bank, uh, withdrawing $1,000 from the ATM, and demanding that instead of getting $100 bills, $50 bills, and $20 bills, that I'd be paid in $200 bills and $30 bills and $7 bills. I can demand everything I want. I can yell and scream and scream at the teller and, and get, but sometimes like demands are just impossible. Like they can't be met. Like it doesn't feasibly exist. And so let's get into what the demands are. Why, again, admirable in some ways, unrealistic in others. But I'm not going to go through every demand. But essentially, what they are is 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 in a couple different categories. One. They want some health and safety protocols surrounding COVID, right? They want to make sure that they're not going to lose their scholarships if they elect to opt out of this season. Okay, I think that's probably pretty easy to handle. Most other conferences have already said that's not an issue. I don't believe the, the Pac-12 has officially said anything yet, but I think it's pretty safe to assume um, that that is not going to be an issue, okay? Every other conference, the SEC, the Big Ten has already said it. Pac-12, I'm sure if they haven't officially said it, it's on the way. They don't want to sign a COVID protocol protecting the university from lawsuit in case something happens. 
Okay, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Many of you are returning to offices. I think most people have to sign something uh, that, that says that, that, that whatever entity cannot be held liable. I know as we get comfortable going back to stadiums, there's probably going to be some verbiage on the ticket that if you catch COVID at a game, you can't sue the team, you can't sue the NFL, you can't sue Major League Baseball, whatever. Uh, there's, and there's some other stuff. There's some racial inequality stuff. I think that's probably pretty easy to handle. It, it sounds like, you know, we want some committees formed. We want some conversations started. Okay. I get it again, not against using your platform for good where some of it becomes a little sticky is some of the economic stuff. So first of all, uh, players say that they want a 50%, uh, revenue share with the conference and college sports in general. And basically, if the Pac-12 makes $100 million, the players in men's and women's college, or men's football, obviously men's football, football and men's college basketball, they want 50% of that revenue. Um, they also want to make sure that no other sports are cut, okay? Stanford just cut 11 sports. They don't want any more sports cut. And their idea is to take endowments from different parts of the university um, and basically use that to fund sports that may lose money uh, from this whole situation. And then there's some other stuff. There's some little stuff. One important piece is name, image, likeness. Uh, and let me just, for people who haven't heard me give this spiel, let me just do it very, very, very briefly. Um, I am in favor of name, image, likeness. I, I've been that way since this legislation first started about a year, year and a half ago, whatever it was. Uh, and it's for one very simple reason. And I've said it on this show. And for those of you who have heard me say it, I apologize, but let me be very brief. I use my name, image, and likeness uh, to my benefit, right? Um, for people who don't know, like uh, when I have a, a sponsorship agreement with, uh, with my bookie or a sponsorship agreement with uh, alcohol or CBD or use this promo code Torres for 10% off, like that is me using my name, image, and likeness. And so I don't think it's fair for me to sit up on a pedestal and say, well, I should be able to do that, but Trevor Lawrence and uh, Zion and Tyrese Maxey should not be able to. I think the image of likeness is a good thing. That's one of the Pac-12's requests. I have no problems with it. I will also say that in general, and I've said this a million times, so I will be brief, I also think that 99.9% .9 of college athletes have it very good. If you're a student athlete, if you're a scholarship athlete in a major university, you get free tuition, room and board, which is housing, and in some of these Pac-12 cities, Los Angeles, Berkeley, Palo Alto, that is no small deal. Uh, you get unlimited food. You get health care from some of the best universities in America. USC Health Center is one of the best health centers in the world. Not sure if you heard. Stanford's pretty good. Cal's pretty good. So I do believe players should get more. I do believe the, the higher-earning athletes or the players that can actually monetize off their name, image, and likeness should get more. But I also uh, do not believe that 99.9% .9 of athletes in college sports have it bad. As a matter of fact, almost all college athletes – don't make any money for the university. I'm not just talking about golfers, swimmers, tennis players, but most college football players don't make money for the university either, okay? Uh, Cal, you know, the backup offensive tackle at Cal, uh, you know, he's basically stealing money from that university in terms of what they're giving him relative to what they're getting back. But back to the Pac-12 stuff and back to why, again, I'm not against players using their voices. I'm not against players, uh, you know, wanting more. But some of it is just absurd. Some of it is just absolutely absurd. And so let me get into it. So first of all, the 50-50 revenue split, okay? We're going to get into that in a second. But I think part of this that like has to be discussed is sometimes in life, 
like like timing what, what's the old saying timing is everything and nuance is everything and context is everything I don't know that this is the conversation that should be being had at this particular moment in time. And it's really funny because I always kind of felt like, okay, at some point, something like this is going to come up. At some point, the players are going to feel like they're being exploited. I don't necessarily feel the same way. And they're just going to say, I'm not showing up. I want more. I deserve more. Give me more or I'm not playing. I will say this, though. I do not know that showing up in the middle of a pandemic when schools are hemorrhaging money, when athletic departments are hemorrhaging money, and people are losing their actual jobs, I don't know that that's the time that you should be talking about revenue splits and revenue sharing. Um, I'll give you an example. I don't know if I mentioned this or not, but part of this is like schools are starting to cut non-revenue sports, right? So Stanford cut 11 sports the other day. Uh, it sucks. I feel bad. You know, hundreds of, of athletes lost their opportunity to compete. Coaches lost their jobs. Uh, but there was a reason that the school cut those sports. And the reason was very simply this. It was because Stanford Athletics was projecting to lose $70 million in the 2020 fiscal year, 2020 into 2021. So don't know if right now is the exact time that we should be talking about revenue sharing because I, I'm not great at math. I'm really like, like math is not my strong suit. But what is 50% of negative 70 million? Not good at math. Not good at math. I don't think it's very much, though. And it's the same at UCLA, which lost $20 million on athletics last year. You know why they lost $20 million on athletics? Because the football team stunk, and nobody went to the games. That's why UCLA football, that's why UCLA athletics is in a, a deficit. Because you didn't make any money. So to split money, you got to make money. So that's one. Two. There's another important reason why this little 50-50 rev split doesn't really make sense. Now I'm just dropping big terms like rev split. The reason 50-50 rev split doesn't make sense, take a guess. It also breaks federal law. What do I mean by that? There's a federal law called Title IX, okay? There's a federal law called Title IX where you cannot be discriminated against based on your sex, based on your sexual, uh, you know, your, your, your natural sex, like, like, a female cannot be targeted or discriminated against based on her sex relative to a male. That is why, by the way, we have so many women's sports on our campuses that don't make money. That's not disrespectful. My sister was a college athlete. I am glad that females are getting opportunities. But the bottom line is, I can count on one hand the number of women's athletic programs in the country that actually make any money. It's UConn women's basketball, maybe Baylor. <laughs> it's not very many, right? It's not very many. And so you can't sit here and talk about this conversation of 50-50 rev split because you're breaking federal law. By law, females have to have the same opportunity as males. Again, that's why we have women swimming and diving, women's tennis, women's golf on all these campuses because you have to give the same number of opportunities to females as males. And so guess what? If you start paying males to play college sports in a 50-50 rev split where, oh, by the way, you're actually making money, which most of these Pac-12 schools aren't and certainly won't in a pandemic, you got to pay the females too. And if the females aren't making money, how are you going to pay them? And if, if, you're, if you're giving so much money to the, to the athletes, guess what's going to happen? 
If now all of a sudden you got to split 50% of revenue with your football team and your basketball team, the money's got to come from somewhere. And you're not going to be able to afford the women's uh, to pay all the women's athletes. And guess what? You're probably going to have to cut a whole bunch of non-revenue sports, both the men's programs and the women's programs. So again, unless you're ready to get federal law rewritten, I don't know how this 50-50 rev split happens. Three, finally, what I would add is this. See, the great thing about this proposal by these, these Pac-12 players, they've thought of everything, okay? So their proposal is, well, the way that we save uh, these programs that are losing money, the way that we cut into this deficit is we're just going to take money from other parts of the university, okay? So basically, they, they reference the endowment at Stanford, okay? And Stanford, uh, again, they cut 11 sports, but their argument, these players' arguments is, well, you know, Stanford just has a, has a $27 billion endowment, so we just take a little $70 million from there, a little $22 million from there, and another, and then we'll just pay it off and we'll keep our women's programs going. Well, first of all, you're already breaking federal law by paying the, the male athletes, but not the female athletes. Okay, so that's one. But let's move past the whole federal law thing being broken, right? Like, let's just, let's just move past that, you know, going to the whole Supreme Court to get laws changed and all that stuff, okay? You can't just take money from other parts of the university that aren't athletic department funds. Like, 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 this is the part that I was talking about, about going in and demanding that I, I get paid in $200 bills and $7 bills. It can't happen. It doesn't exist. You think that like David Shaw, the football coach at Stanford, just has the authority to say, well, guess what? We're going to pay my guys. So, hey, president of the school, that $100 million that was earmarked for a new chemistry program, um, yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna to scratch that chemistry building and we're just going to give it to, to all the Olympic sports so that they can keep going so that nobody loses their opportunity. You think David Shaw has that ability? You think the athletic director at Stanford has that ability? No. First of all, the most basic understanding of college endowment is this. Most endowments go to something really specific, right? You graduate from the Stanford uh, you know, medical department. You give money to build the next, like I said, um, endocrinology, you know, ward or whatever. I don't even know what endocrinology is, but it sounds fancy. That sounds like something a Stanford alum would uh, give money to the school for to get them to build, right? So first of all, most people give money to very specific things. And I know that the Stanford football players and the Cal football players and the Oregon football players think that only people care about them, but you can't just take money that's earmarked for other things and just, oh, well, you know, we were going to build a new chemistry building, but, you know, we got to keep that women's rowing team afloat. So let's take that uh, $70 million and let's figure out a way and screw chemistry. And that's the other thing, by the way. So, like, at some point, the money still has to come from somewhere. And so now what these football players are essentially saying is pay us, use money from somewhere else in the university to pay for the women's swimming and diving team. But that money still has to come from somewhere. So that means that chemistry scholarships are not being filled. Uh, a new chemistry building is not being built. A new dorm is not being built so you can't have as many students enroll in campus. Like the money still has to come from somewhere and somebody is still getting screwed. And I really wish it wasn't the college football players. I wish they got more. And I really wish it wasn't the athletes that had their sports cut. That sucks. I hate it. As I said, my sister was, and I'm all fired up and I'm yelling and screaming, I'm out of breath. But like my sister was a college athlete. I don't want opportunities taken away from females. I don't want opportunities taken away from male golfers and tennis players and wrestlers and track and field guys. But like we have to use common sense here. 
And so to me, I am just so over this conversation. I'm so over college athletes complaining about how hard they have it when, as I've said a hundred times, 99.9% of them have it good. And we spend so much time focusing on Trevor Lawrence, so much time focusing on Zion Williamson, so much time focusing on uh, whoever, that the vast majority of them are stealing money from the school. They really are. And I'm almost at the point now, and I know there's no way this could happen, I would love for Larry Scott to just throw his you-know-what on the table and say, okay, all right, guys, let's talk. First of all, a couple things. One, I'll tell you what. We'll give you a salary. We'll give you that 50-50 rev split. But in that 50-50 rev split, uh, you got to give up your scholarship. We're not paying for your housing. We're not paying for your food. We're not paying for anything. But you can get that 50-50 that rev split. I wonder how many guys would actually take advantage of that. Forget the fact that there are kids in the Mountain West right now that would kill to play in the Pac-12. There are kids in FCS schools that would kill to play in the Pac-12. JUCO kids that would kill for the opportunity to play at UCLA, USC, whatever. So like, 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 let's put that aside. I would love to see Larry Scott just be like, dude, okay, but the money's got to come from somewhere. I know in your perfect world I'm just going to take $70 million from the 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 chemistry lab and put it towards all these other sports, but that's not how it works. So let's say we can get that federal law changed. And here's the deal. We will pay you, but you got to pay for all your stuff. I wonder how many people would take that. I wonder how many parents who have spent thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands on private coaches, on travel teams, on summer ball. I wonder how excited on seven on seven passing camps. I wonder how excited they would be uh, for their, for their kids to now have to pay for their own college again. In the Pac-12 specifically, where two schools are based in the Bay Area, the most expensive city in America, and two more are based in L.A., which is pretty darn expensive itself. I would love, I would love to see how all that works out. Um, and that doesn't even include, by the way, the idea of if you're getting paid, now you have responsibilities as an employee, and that brings up a whole other can of worms, which is a lot of other things that aren't being talked about. Like, like the players just want all the benefit with none of the drawback. Okay, you want to get paid? You want rev split? Okay. One, pay for your housing, tuition, and all that stuff. Two, what happens if revenue goes down? Do you pay some of that back? What happens if we start 0-4 and we can't sell tickets anymore? Am I allowed to fire you? Am I allowed to send you? Like, like, I'm not saying athletes don't deserve more, but I am so tired of these kids and it's not even the kids, and, and it, part of it is the media too. Part of it is people in my space encouraging them. Oh, you have it so tough. Oh, you're so, life is so hard. Oh, no, go to a college campus. Go see how a UCLA football player lives. UCLA stinks, by the way. They're terrible, and they're treated like kings. I wish the media would call a spade a spade and be real. They won't. Everyone's afraid. Nobody wants backlash on Twitter. It's ridiculous, but... I'm all fired up. I want to get to basketball because basketball is, uh, I'm smiling over basketball. This is just making me mad. But this idea that these Pac-12 kids, their life is so tough. Go pay for tuition and housing in Berkeley. See how it goes back up offensive tackle. You stink. You stink. You stink. You're not good. You're stealing money from that school. And by the way, that degree is probably going to make you 10 times what you're going to get playing college football within a couple years of being out of school. Pac-12 thing's got me all fired up, man. I'm all stressed, but I do want to talk some basketball. And I do want to hit on some basketball because that actually will put me in a good mood. And for people who, uh, who have not been following the basketball calendar, first of all, I think most people probably aren't new to this show in the last couple months. But if you are, basically, 
uh, we find that balance between college football and college basketball. As I said to lead the show, find you a guy that can do both. AT does both. I talk a little football. I talk a little basketball. But for people who haven't been following the calendar, this was actually a really big weekend for this upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. You might be wondering why. Well, the NBA draft has obviously been pushed way, way, way back. Usually it's in June, and when the draft is usually in June, what that usually means is that a player has to decide by the end of May whether they're staying in the draft or not to retain college eligibility. To the credit of the NCAA, as the NBA draft has gotten pushed back, the NCAA has pushed back the deadline as long as they possibly could to allow these players to get as much information as they can. And so now the NBA draft deadline is officially on Monday, the day that you're listening, August 3rd at 5 p.m. And by 5 p.m. today, 5 p.m. Monday, we will know who is officially coming back to college basketball and who is not. And I understand that for some of you, the date really doesn't mean all that much. Ironically, uh, Kentucky has no guys that are testing the draft water, so their roster has been set for weeks. Kansas, Duke, North Carolina, the Blue Bloods really didn't have anybody testing those waters. And so because of it, it, it was an interesting weekend and couple days for a lot of schools that are trying to figure out what their roster has looked like. And with the deadline coming up, this weekend was actually really big in terms of guys deciding whether to stay in the draft or remove their names for college basketball. Now, I should mention before I get into all of this, I'm recording here late on Sunday night, and some of the information that I'm going to share with you going forward will change by the time you listen to this. So what I want to do is first talk about the guys that over the weekend decided whether to stay or to go and what it means for college basketball, the programs that were winners over the course of this last weekend, a school like Arkansas that got Isaiah Joe back, a school like Arizona that got a kid named Remy Martin back, Illinois, Iowa, etc. And then I'll go, go over the last two, three, four decisions that will be made on Monday and what it will mean again if you're listening late Monday if you're listening into Tuesday these decisions will be made I do apologize but this is a timely show and I have to adjust as is and I should also mention make sure you're following on Twitter make sure you're following on Instagram because as soon as that deadline hits at 5 p.m. I will release my top 25 in terms of what my top 25 will look like now that we know the rosters are set. All right, so let's get into this and let's talk about some of the decisions that got made this weekend and what it means for college basketball in 2020. So first of all, the biggest single winner of this weekend was the University of Illinois. Illinois had what was a staggering weekend, and why it was a staggering weekend is for this simple reason. They had two guys testing the draft waters. Their star point guard, Io DeSumo, who was a second-team All-Big Ten performer last year, he averaged 17 points and three assists a game. He decides to come back on Friday, and then it's followed up on Saturday by Kofi Coburn, big guy, physical, 13 points, nine boards a game. He decides to come back. So two all-Big Ten caliber players decide to come back, but here is why it's even bigger, okay? I can tell you definitively that of every single person that made the decision to return to college basketball, uh, not only these last couple days, but I would really argue over the last four or five months, there is not a bigger surprise than Io DeSumo. And let me explain why. 
I would assume coming out of high school was a top 25 prospect. It was assumed almost universally that the kid was basically a one and done, okay? He enrolls two seasons ago, has a really good freshman year, and then last year decides that he is going to, in fact, come back for this previous season, which was his sophomore year in 2019-2020. He leads Illinois to a fifth place finish in the Big Ten. Excuse me, fourth place finish. How dare I? Fourth place finish, 21 wins. They were the best Illinois team in years. And it was it was like it was a foregone conclusion. Like when we all put together our, our way too early top 25s and we all started projecting out what 2020, 2021 could look like, it was a done deal. He wasn't coming back. It wasn't even in the conversation. And so the idea that over the last couple weeks that he would even consider to come back, let alone pull the trigger, was just an absolutely stunning piece of news that hit the waiver or hit the wires, excuse me, on Friday afternoon. Kofi Coburn, that's a little bit of a different deal. He's a big guy. He's a strong guy. He's kind of an old school, low post center. He needs to work on some stuff to be ready for the NBA. But I am telling you, Io DeSumo was the single biggest stunner of this entire cycle. No one thought he was going to come back to the point that, I'll take it a step further, not only did media not think he was going to come back. Brad Underwood, the head coach at Illinois, did not think he was going to come back because he signed two of the best high school point guards in the country this last year to replace Io DeSumo. Uh, Adam Miller, a kid out of Chicago, who was ironically his high school teammate, and then another kid named Andre Curbelo from New York. And I'm just telling you, there is no one that thought this was going to happen. So it is huge for Illinois, and I will tell you this. I'm just going to tell you kind of where I have some of these teams slated on my top 25, and I will talk about that top 25 on the next episode. But Illinois, in my opinion, was going to come into this season unranked before Io DeSumo decided to come back. I now have them number five in the country going into this following season. They return virtually everyone off a team that finished in fourth place in the Big Ten, and they are going to be really, really, really good. Staying in the Big Ten, speaking of the Big Ten, I'm tripping over my own words. If there was one other team that was as big of a winner over the weekend as Illinois, there is no doubt that it was Iowa. Why Iowa? Well, because they brought back friend of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Luca Garza. If you remember, Luca Garza won the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar Award as the nation's top center. He averaged 24 points and 10 rebounds a game last year. He was an absolute monster. And following him being named to that award, he joined the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can go back and listen. I don't know when, it, when the interview was. It was probably the middle of March. And he talked about you know the decision to go. He understood that there was a lot at stake. And so he, on Sunday, announced that he is going to come back. By the way, shout out, Dylan, who listens to this show, works for the Iowa basketball team. He actually made Luca Garza's announcement return video. That was the it was a it was a playoff the Wolf of Wall Street when Leonardo DiCaprio says, "I'm not leaving. I'm coming back." My guy Dylan, who listens to this podcast, works for Iowa basketball. He made that video, so shout out to Dylan. It was an awesome video, and it was an awesome day for Iowa as Luca Garza announces that he's going to come back. And for people who do not follow this, and if you don't follow, it's okay. That's what I'm here for. 
Uh, Iowa basically returns everybody. And Iowa is another team. They finished in fifth place in the Big Ten. They were really, really good last year, 20-11 and 11 overall. And now they bring back, I believe, six of their top seven scorers from last season. And then they also had a kid named Jordan Bohannon, who was one of their best backcourt players, who was hurt for almost all of last year. He gets a red shirt, and he comes back and is healthy as well. So in the same way that this is Illinois' single best uh, chance to really compete for a national championship since 15 years, I think this is Iowa's best team in my lifetime, probably in the last 30 years. I was a, I was a, I was a, a wee little boy. But in the late 80s, early 90s, Iowa had some really good teams. This is the best team that Iowa has had really since I've really, really, really started covering college basketball. And it's because Luca Garza, a consensus first-team All-American, has decided to return. Staying on the positive note, how about them Razorbacks? I said it earlier in the show when I was talking a little bit of basketball, but Arkansas, Isaiah Joe, their second leading scorer announces that he is going to come back. It was a wild week. The buzz early in the week was that he was going, that he was gone, that he had decided he was going to take his chances at the professional level. Instead, he decides to come back after averaging 17 points a game last year. And of course, if you followed Arkansas basketball, we have a lot of fans of Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas, a lot of SEC schools. So most of you guys know the story with Arkansas, but they were really, really, really good last year. Isaiah Joe goes down with injury. They go one in five without him. And we're probably on the outside of the NCAA tournament looking in. Well, Isaiah Joe is back now, and Arkansas is loaded. I've talked a lot about Arkansas during this offseason, but a bunch of really high-level grad transfers. Vance Jackson, who I really think the world of, who's from uh, New Mexico. He played the last few years at New Mexico. Started his career at my alma mater, the University of Connecticut. Uh, they have a big point guard named Jalen Tate, who is a graduate transfer. Justin Smith from Indiana. They had a couple of transfers sitting out last year. And oh, by the way, had a top 10 recruiting class headlined by two top 50 prospects, K.K. Robinson and Moses Moody. And so when you look at Arkansas, what you see is a team that will be completely different than they were last season. If you remember last season with Arkansas, the knock, the whatever, the this, the that, was that in the first season with Eric Musselman, um, he inherited a team that just didn't have very much size. And in a lot of games, they didn't start a single player taller than 6'6". It cost them in some games. There were some games where they outplayed opponents, but they just couldn't get rebounds because they didn't have the size. And so this year, they are going to have what I believe one of the deepest, most versatile teams in the country with size, athleticism, length. They're going to look like an NBA team when they walk in the gym. I mentioned the kid Vance Jackson. He's six foot nine, but he is a perimeter player. They have a transfer from Cal named Connor Vanover, who is seven foot three, but can play on the perimeter. You go on and on and on down the list. They are just so much bigger, so much more athletic. Really, really, really talented team at Arkansas, and I'm really excited to see them play. Uh, and I think they were one of the big winners of this offseason. They will be in my top 25 come Monday night. Same deal with Arizona State. For people who don't follow Arizona State, Arizona State was probably quietly one of the most underrated, underappreciated teams in college basketball last year. Uh, as they came down the stretch in late February, they won 
uh, I believe it was seven games in a row, and they also won eight of their final 12. And it was basically due to this three-headed monster of a backcourt, uh, a point guard by the name of Remy Martin. Don't laugh, that's his real name. Uh, Remy Martin, who I've actually seen a ton dating back to his high school days when he played with Marvin Bagley, Alonzo Verge, and Rob Edwards, okay? Rob Edwards graduates, Alonzo Verge is coming back, but Remy Martin, who kind of spearheads it all, he's the guy. He averaged 15, or excuse me, 19 a game last year, four assists. He was one of the best players in the Pac-12 for a team that I think people would have really been surprised how good Arizona State was had there been an NCAA tournament. Well, guess what? Remy Martin test the waters, was planning on, was he going to stay, was he going to go, he announces that he's coming back, and now you add him in with not only Alonzo Verge, the kid I mentioned, but Joshua Christopher, the elite, elite high school player, you're talking about a team, I don't know if I'm ready to go there yet, but we're talking about a team that's potentially the best team in the Pac-12. Now, I do think UCLA has a player that they're waiting on. If UCLA gets back their whole roster, I think they're the favorite. But Arizona State is right there. Uh, but huge, huge, huge day for Arizona State as they get the return of Remy Martin. Okay, couple other teams that had a good weekend. Seton Hall, their big guy, Sandro Mamashkunavili. I don't know how to say his last name. I apologize. Big guy, physical. He is back. Seton Hall, I believe, is a top three, top four team in the Big East going into next year. They do lose Miles Powell, but return basically everybody else. A mixed bag day at Michigan State, okay? So I do want to talk a little bit about Michigan State. Michigan State is, uh, Michigan State is a team that was basically set to, in theory, uh, return everyone other than Cassius Winston off of last year's team. However, at the last moment on Sunday, their second leading scorer, their leading rebounder, Xavier Tillman, decided to stay in the draft. I will tell you, this one went back and forth the entire course of the spring and summer. It is ultimately not that surprising, though, to people around Michigan State. Xavier Tillman is married. Uh, he has two small children, and he is potentially going to be a first-round draft pick. And independent of whether you're going to be a first-round draft pick or not, when you have two small kids, a lot of times you do need to start pursuing professional opportunities. I understand that. That is the downside for Michigan State. Here is the upside for Michigan State. They did get back Aaron Henry, their third-leading scorer from last season. He decided to withdraw his name from the draft. And when you look at him with the pieces that are left, I still think Michigan State's a really good team. Now, they are not top five. They are not top 10. I would have had them somewhere in that five to 10 range if Xavier Tillman came back. He did not. But you look at Michigan State's perimeter. Rocket Watts, a true freshman last year, was awesome. Aaron Henry, they got Joey Hauser, who is a transfer from Marquette, who was really good uh, at Marquette. And then also, keep in mind, Josh Lankford, who was the team's leading scorer two years ago, missed this entire season with injury. The buzz that I'm hearing is he's coming back. And so that core four of Rocket Watts, Aaron Henry, Josh Langford, and Joey Hauser, that program has a chance to still be really, really good next year, but they will drop without Xavier Tillman. But the positive is that Aaron Henry comes back. Another program that... Had a good weekend, but I guess the best way to put it is an unfulfilled weekend, I think is probably the best way to put it, is Gonzaga. So first of all, shout out to Gonzaga, because my guy, you've heard me talk about him on this podcast, Joel, aye, aye, 
Joel Ai, he has decided to come back to Gonzaga. Uh, he was a guy that really blew up early in the season. I thought he was potentially a guy that would be gone after last season. He wasn't able to sustain it. And instead, he did finish averaging double figures, but felt like he needs one more year of college basketball. So he decided to come back. But I call it an unfulfilled weekend for Gonzaga because they do still have one more player deciding. That is Corey Kispert, their their second leading scorer last year. He averaged 14 a game, best three-point shooter. Um, and I think he is one... As he decides, he is still deciding as I record this late Wednesday, it's about 10 o'clock Eastern time, um, he is still deciding. And he has a tough decision to make. I do think his game translates. I do think he could potentially, uh, first round lock feels a little bit strong, but he is a guy that I could see potentially being a first round, early second round pick. And so I think he has a tough decision to make. So Corey Kispert is going to be the X factor at Gonzaga if he comes back. I have Gonzaga number two in the country right behind Villanova. Again, that top 25 will be out Monday night. Make sure you're following on Instagram for the update. Uh, and I do want to get into a couple of the other big decisions that will come down on Monday. Jared Butler, uh, Baylor's best player by far. Not sure how much you remember about Baylor last year. They were awesome. They won 22 games in a row at one point. They were number one in the country for a bunch of weeks. They couldn't lose for a long time. They went to Fog Allen Fieldhouse and won. Well, the heart and soul of that team is a kid named Jared Butler, phenomenal player, averaged 16 points a game, was also a great three-point shooter, oh, just a really dynamic guard, okay? He is still testing the draft waters. And I think he is probably the single most important decision left. Because if he comes back, then you're talking about returning for Baylor. Uh, six, excuse me, what is it? Seven of their top nine scorers off of a team that was, again, number one in the country for big chunks of last year, 22 straight wins at one point last year, a win at Fog Allen Fieldhouse, a win over Villanova. They were just phenomenal last year, but Jared Butler will be making his decision, and I think it's a huge one. If he comes back, Baylor, I they're going to be somewhere from number two, number three, number four in the country. If he does not come back, I think they fall potentially. I think you can make the argument out of the top 25. I may have them at 20. 21, 22, somewhere in there, but it's going to be hard to justify keeping them higher. So he is probably the single biggest decision left besides Corey Kispert, the one that I mentioned. I should also mention on the uh, front in terms of t uh, guys that are making that decision, Chris Smith at, at UCLA. If you remember UCLA, they were terrible early. They go on a crazy run late. They win nine out of their last 12. They were one game away from tying for the Pac-12 championship. I thought Mick Cronin maybe should have won national coach of the year with what he did with that program over the second half of the year. Well, the one thing they did not do well, they were not a super dynamic offensive team. Chris Smith was their leading scorer, a big wing, kind of athletic, skilled, uh, but he is also kind of young too. He's still only 20 years old as a, as a junior in college, and if he comes back, I do think UCLA is the overwhelming favorite in the Pac-12. I do think they are a top 10-ish type team, but again, it just comes down to if he comes back or not, it remains to be seen. Uh, who else? Who else? Who else? Who else? couple other guys that are still on the fence. Probably worth mentioning John Petty at Alabama. Uh, look, you could say what you want about him. He came in as a highly touted player, 
did not fulfill that promise early. He was really good for Nate Oates' team last year, and we had Nate Oates on this podcast earlier this spring, and the thing about what Nate Oates does is they play fast, they shoot a lot of threes, and he was a guy that it's easy to to forget because Alabama wasn't very good, but he was a guy that really thrived in that system under Nate Oates. He averaged uh, 14.5 points a game. He shot 44% from three-point land. Alabama was the third leading team, leading scoring team in college basketball. They took the most threes in the country. And he's a guy that the Alabama folks think, like, Nate Oates said this on my podcast. I'm not sharing anything that he hasn't said publicly many times over. They think John Petty's a guy that could potentially play himself into the first round if he comes back. Still think Alabama will be good, but he is obviously a huge factor. Staying in the SEC, I'll just make it quick. Uh, Trendon Watford, Javante Smart, Darius Days, all still testing the waters as I record here on uh, on on Sunday night. Um, they come back. They're right around a top 25 team. Any combination of the other of them don't come back. I don't know that uh, LSU is going to be a team that can compete at the top of the SEC. So we will see there. And then finally, the last one, Eve Pons, best player at Tennessee. Uh, I, you know, what I'm hearing is, is that he is trying to get any guarantee. He is ready to kind of pursue a professional path. He is also from France. So obviously, uh, it, it's more easy for him to pursue professional opportunities overseas, but he is probably Tennessee's best player. If he comes back, we're talking about Tennessee as probably either the favorite or the co-favorite in the SEC along with Kentucky. If he does not come back, Uh, I do think it is a big knock on Tennessee. So the guys that you need to watch out for on Monday, if you're listening to this on Monday morning, you want to watch out for Jared Butler at Baylor, Corey Kispert at Gonzaga, uh, Chris Smith at UCLA, Trenton Watford, Javante Smart, and Darius Days at LSU, John Petty at Bama, and Eve Pons at Tennessee. But a great weekend for Illinois, Iowa, Arkansas, Arizona State, Seton Hall. Etc. Woo! AT went long today. Woo! Long show for AT today, but a great show. Really fun show. And as always, I appreciate you guys listening to what I do here on the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. A lot to get into over these last couple hours. I can't believe the kind of content that is being delivered to us. But uh, yeah, you could tell this was kind of a once in a lifetime show or a once in a long time show where I got so fired up about that Pac-12 stuff. But great show, fun show. And I hope you were able to listen to the end because a lot of good college hoop stuff. But... I'll make this quick as I get out of here. If you're not subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, please make sure to do so. iTunes, if you're on an Android, Podcast Addict is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you listen to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, where you listen, all that stuff. Make sure you're following on Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram. Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com if you have any questions for the show uh, and as I mentioned thinking about doing a third show during the week once football ramps up in the middle of September so if you're not subscribed make sure to do so and if you want that third show let me know hit me up uh, either via email Twitter DM whatever let me know can you fit it in is it too much is it not enough find out let me know but it was a great show I appreciate it as I said I will be back later this week Uh, to break down the NBA draft deadline, who were the winners, who were the losers, 
these final few decisions, and I will talk about my top 25 as well as anything that came out in the days uh, in the days since this episode. And I feel like something crazy is going to happen because something crazy continues to happen, especially in the world of college football. But uh, that is all for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Thank you for listening. Do want to give a quick shout out to my boy Torrent Craig. Do want to give a quick shout out to Rachel, who is my voice, and I will be back later this week. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.